What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, folks? Today, we're extremely privileged to be joined by David Chan, Managing Director at Deloitte Digital. David started his journey at PepsiCo as a data strategy analyst and progressed to a senior associate role at Accenture Interactive. He then joined Deloitte Digital as a senior consultant, where he worked his way up to managing director, leading their CDP practice and focusing on marketing transformation and operations. He possesses extensive knowledge in crafting real-time personalization strategies, blending ID resolution, CDPs, AI, ML, dynamic content, and their interplay within the broader MarTech ecosystem. At Deloitte, David also works with product engineering teams to develop assets using tech platforms like AWS, Snowflake, Adobe, Salesforce, and many others. David, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, super pumped to have you on. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'd, I'd love to just uh, ask you right off the top, like how how you got into to CDPs and, and MarTech. Like when I was doing a bit of research, I saw that like customer data management obviously has ties all the way back to like the 90s, uh, but CDP actually wasn't really a thing until like 2010-ish, although some tools maybe had like similar functionalities, but you actually started at Deloitte in 2011, right around that time. So did you like initially dive into CDPs? Walk us through that journey a little bit and how your love for CDPs was first ignited. Yeah. Back in 2010 time period, CDP wasn't even on my radar. Um, back then, it was really focused on web analytics, um, web, web content management systems, commerce systems. Um, CDPs was definitely, or, or the concept of data wasn't really the, the problems marketers were trying to solve for. At that time, a lot of conversations were, do I build a native app, like mobile app, or do I buy more hybrid or web-based app, you know, what are the implications? Is mobile going to be a thing? And I still remember back then the conversations was, do you really want to build a mobile application when we're not sure the use cases of mobile, will people really buy things on it? Mm -hmm. um, size is really small. Will people really want to go on a mobile screen versus, uh, uh, you know, a desktop screen? So you've seen a lot of things have changed <laughs> tremendously in the last 10 years or so. Um, so my background has always actually been in digital marketing, really focused on web analytics, um, content management, commerce, uh, mobile app development, uh, CRM, MarTech, et cetera. And only occurred to me, or um, I really got into that data space about five years ago when you know Deloitte as a company, um, we acquire certain companies strategically as part of a, a broader strategy. And it was the first time that we acquired a company that had a data and analytics um, capability that were that was very new to our practice at the time. And so um, that was probably the first time I was asked to take on a role in looking at how to integrate that into our broader portfolio of services. How does that work? And that's how I started down the CDP rabbit hole. Very cool. Yeah, we've uh, we've been down the rabbit hole on, on CDP on the podcast recently. Uh, myself and my current startup, we we did the the internal debate on like, do we go the composable route, build something that's a, a bit more flexible and custom? Uh, we're in like the health tech space, so HIPAA and BAAs is like a big uh, compliance area for us. Uh, but we also like debated the packaged route. So I like last summer you you wrote a really thoughtful piece that you titled "Unbundling CDPs: Are We There Yet?" Um, this was like one of the articles that that jumped out to me when when I was doing my research and reached out to you and. and was really curious to to get you on the show here, but like it, it was partly a response to the post in, in High Touch uh, when they declared that CDPs are dead, right? And uh, you compare unbundling, interestingly, there to like choosing individual cable channels instead of like preset packages. Um, you argued that like CDPs may evolve, but they're far from dead because many companies still need bundled CDPs until they better understand how to select and assemble all of those components in, in the data stack. What made you confident last year that companies were not ready to select and assemble individual components of a CDP? And has your chance, your stance changed a little bit given the success of reverse ETL startups? And maybe just like unpack, like what is your definition of the composable CDP? Because I know you said it's a bit different than some of my previous guests. Yeah, so um, when I think about a composable um, CDP, uh, there, there's actually something that pre-exists you know, a composable CDP 
that a lot of people already attune and, and believe as, you know, here, here's an approach to composable. And that's actually with commerce. So um, like I said, my background um, in the past um, in, included a lot of different technologies, but commerce and web content management was, was one of them. Back in like uh, 2013, 2015, it became very common to have what they called headless commerce. What's headless commerce? It was uh, splitting up um, web content management from just pure commerce tools where um, the web content management tool would act as the front end and the commerce that had all the heavy logic and the, you know, uh, the checkout pages and the product detail pages and sort of handling all the OMS and fulfillment options that was kind of separated out. And there were different like ways in which you could composably build that. That was just like a very first start where there was sort of like three patterns you can follow. And over time, it got even more, more advanced. Um, some content management systems completely break apart from a template. Everything is these uh, different components, even on a page in which um, your operation teams would build uh, even pages off of, right? Web pages, that is. And so the composable architecture approach is something I've already seen in a commerce space. Now I'm looking at it and comparing it to the CDP space. Well, what's the difference? Number one, the composability approach of commerce went through the same sort of like, let's call it consolidation and the mashing and the banging <laughs> that we're seeing today in the CDP <laughs> space, which is like, these, none of these things really want to work together. They're, they're, right. they're all a bunch of features um, and capabilities, but how do they actually plug in together in a unified way? And so um, what's happened, right? If you think about, it's been 10 years since then, more standards and partnerships have evolved where people know, okay, here is how um, all these composable things should fit together. That's what's missing right now in the CDP space. All that hardening of thoughts, standards, frameworks, um, of how, not how their tools work, but how they should work together. Uh, that's really what's missing, but I see it happening, right? I, 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 there's no reason why it wouldn't follow that route. You just have to give it some more time. And has that changed? Has my, um, belief changed at all? No, it hasn't. It, we're still not there yet. In my opinion. Very cool. Yeah, I like the the way that you unpacked that and and the similarities with like the the headless commerce and and, and seeing that in like headless CMSs now as well. Like a uh, very similar type of uh, way of, of unbundling stuff, but like trying to make them work together after you unbundle them. But like I'm curious, like of like on the composable route, like for CDPs, what is like your, in your opinion, like the, the top benefit? Cause I know you've written about like being a proponent of the composable route. Um, so like, you know, I've heard a bunch of different variations of this, like, but what would be your answer on the top benefit of the composable route? It's choice. I mean, bottom line is choice, right? So, um, I use the, the, the cable package as the example of, you know, buying a, a bundle subscription of something where you might only watch, you know, two or three channels that you really care about. Um, it's too good of a deal to pack, uh, pick up. Um, or it could be even if you go to a um, restaurant or fast food quick serve and you buy a combo, right? You don't really want the fries, maybe you just want the burger or vice versa. But it's just, it's this idea that um, right now, uh, package CDPs come pre bundled with a set of features and capabilities that work very differently from each other. And you kind of have to buy it all or, or, or none of it. Um, composability gives you the potential to pick and choose the best of everything. Um, but obviously uh, I always tell people composability, you can get the best of both worlds or the worst of both worlds. So you have to be very careful especially because like we said, this is very early stages of, of that composability journey, which will uh, we will all mature together in the next couple of years, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. Who do you think is like the, the ideal type of company that um, might be best suited to explore this, this composable strategy? Like you pointed out, um, interestingly, that like there's really only two types of organizations that can effectively uh, use this strategy. And they kind of sit at opposite ends of this spectrum. You've got like large enterprise with uh, a ton of resources and commitment to ongoing improvement in their operational model. But on the other end, you've got smaller digital native startups and companies with 
like way less data, fewer technical hurdles. Would love for you to like unpack that. And curious, like if you think there's like industry specific areas here where like some industries like health tech, for example, it makes total sense to go to the composable route because of all the regulations and the compliance with HIPAA. Um, yeah, I would love you uh, to unpack that. Sure. So um, one thing we haven't talked about, but I think the hardest part in a CDP project, whether it's composable or packaged, is how you build your identities. And so how identity is constructed, by the way, in the U.S. is very different how U.S. is seen in um, other parts of the world. So so what identity means in the U.S., uh, for example, which is to say uh, where you live is a strong proxy for identity because most people only live, live at one physical address and receive their bills there, but they have multiple devices, multiple IDs. You go to Asia... Um, in China, if you have the WeChat ID, you're pretty much set, right? Like you just need that identifier because they do all their banking. <laughs> they, they, they read those WhatsApp messages more than they open emails. Right. Mm. And so you see that identity kind of varies by location. So going back, I think identity is the hardest thing to solve for in most companies for what will then become the most successful driver of their CDP project or program. Now, in a large company, why I said that a very large uh, enterprise company would be really successful is because not all will, but the ones that are, they've actually, what you don't see is that they've spent like 10 years. They probably spent millions of dollars failing along the way. Um, Probably many people have left the company, but they had this commitment to really like take ownership of their enterprise data that they're now ready to basically say, hey, we we understand what it means to be a do-it-yourself, um, take ownership of this type of data. They probably master not just customer data domains, but they do um, product domains, account domains, financial domains, like supply chain. Like They probably master all of those. And now all they need is something like a reverse detail vendor or a data activation tool to unlock it because that's the hardest part. Um, giving business users a front-end UI versus forcing them to constantly work with IT resources to build them SQL uh, queries, right? And so that makes sense. This is like, hey, 95% of the work's been done. I just need this you know, last mile, 5% complete by reverse ETL vendor. Now, a small di- on, the, on the flip side, a small digital native shop, um, they don't have the tech baggage, right? They don't have tech debt. They have probably fewer requirements, you have the ability to go slower. And so the the, the over, overall complexity is just so much lower um, to actually go a composable route if they know that that's the path. When you think about what verticals, I think that's your question, or industries make the most sense, it's going to be um, companies that are less omni-channel is going to be easier to solve for than uh, things that are very digital native. So example, imagine a retail company that collects data, not only on the web and digital channels, but also in store and unifying that data. Harder to do than streaming service, right? Think about your Netflix, your Hulu's, your your Disney Pluses, et cetera. I mean, to get access to that content, you have to log in. (laughs) You've already given your credit card. Um, They know uh, what, what you're watching every time Anytime there is no anonymous uh, browse option, right? So to them, you're, you, they kind of got you dead to rights. And so identity is very easy to solve there. You don't even need an address, right? like a physical address in that point. So that's an example of like a vertical of where it's very easy to pull off um, a CDP project, regardless of whether you know it's a composable or package or not. Very interesting. I like the the way you broke that down. And I, I like having myself been part of... Uh... Some some larger teams and 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 seeing like the the less tech debt that there is in, in in smaller shops, but still the 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 difference there is definitely the the lack of resources, right? Like uh, when I chat with marketers about this idea of even unbundling the CDP, like they're just turn or waking up to the idea of a CDP and like CDPs are dead for them. It's just like, what? Like CDPs are like so new to me. Like how, how can it be dead already? But like, we're already talking about like unbundling that. And to do that, you really need like 
a data team that works with you and like that's way less prevalent at, at smaller companies than than at bigger companies though that is changing a lot like five ten years ago at startups like i, I didn't have a data team like it, it just wasn't a thing all the engineers were working on the product nowadays like there's a product team filled with engineers but there's also a data team filled with engineers that focus on data and analysts and they're working on this pipeline stuff so maybe at some point in like the next five ten years and in the middle of this scale um there's going to be a divergence there but I, I like the way that you uh you broke that down yeah if you think about it also if, uh, composability is taking one big thing like one big rock and breaking them down into smaller like one big boulder breaking it down into smaller rocks and pebbles and whatnot, right? Um, smaller teams will also have a more difficult, uh, in general, uh, smaller companies with smaller teams probably have smaller like rocks to plug together, right? Mm. Whereas more larger enterprise companies have rocks and pebbles and much more of them. So if you think about it from a scale perspective, Think about vendor management. How many tools do you have to then license, right? You have to go to procurement. You have to run through InfoSec. You got to review all those things, all those things. Then you need someone to actually manage all of them. Um, not only the account relationship and the payments of them, but also the integration points between them. And how many times have you gone onto a project where it's just a bunch of finger pointing, right? Between, oh, it's not <laughs> working because of this versus that. Whose fault is it? But imagine that at an even larger scale, right? Like for, for a CDP, if you just say kind of low end, there's maybe five to eight in that range, that's still five to eight more than you can probably handle for some companies. So that complexity to your point, um, when you talk about resourcing, uh, is something you definitely have to factor in from a TCO perspective of like, how are you going to maintain this thing? Cause it's not one and done. It's, it's an ongoing living, breathing project. Yeah. Or platform. Like your point. Yeah, maintenance TCOs, but also just like troubleshooting, like you said, like if, if yeah. there's an issue that happens, like, is it like, is it just the CDP that we want that we have? Or is it like one of the five or eight components that are spread across? Like, all right, let's let's pause stuff and, and get all hands on deck here and, and figure this out. Uh, yeah, definitely harder to do with a smaller team of resources and a composable stack there. But um, yeah, I want to, I want to ask you, cause like, I know you've, you've written about this and, and this is maybe like some of the more controversial elements or more like sticky marketing type of, of, of blog posts to, to drive stuff to, to reverse CTL tools. But like, do you think like reverse CTL tools can truly replace legacy customer data platforms today or in the future? To me, like having census on the podcast and, and high touch, um, it is it has been really interesting to see how polarizing, like despite the fact that they're both reverse ETL tools and they activate data from the warehouse, they both have a different like stance on like how they fit into this the CDP world. When I spoke to Boris, like he explained that census they neither replace traditional CDPs or claim to do so. In fact, many of their customers have been using census in combination with a CDP for many years. Their philosophy is very much like we're building tools that integrate seamlessly with others, providing users more trustworthy data in places without adding complexity. High Touch, though, has more controversial stance, claiming to be able to replace legacy CDPs altogether. When I spoke with Tejas, he prov provided a bunch of examples of significant enterprise customers like Blizzard, Activision, Warner, who have transitioned from packaged CDPs and now consider High Touch their CDP of choice. You wrote a really interesting post in response to Tejas's friends don't let friends buy a CDP post, uh, essentially citing with Boris a little bit like that reverse detail vendors are not CDPs and they do not truly believe CDPs are as a category are dead. They'd simply prefer the composable route there, but I would love your take there. Like, is the composable CDP approach more sustainable than the package route in the long run? And can reverse CTL tools like actually replace CDPs today? So, so Boris and I actually, I moderated a panel um, uh, sponsored by Census on this whole composable versus CDP a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago or months ago, rather. And uh, I got a chance to connect with Boris and, and learn more about sort of his background. And that what you said basically aligns with my understanding is, hey, Boris didn't set out to basically conquer CDP. He was just trying to build really good tech that helps um, data teams uh, 
do do better work and, and be more uh, successful at their jobs um, in company. So I totally understand Boris's point of view. Now, Tejas, I don't actually know if he actually believes what he's saying um, <laughs> because um, it, it kind of then makes me question what he thinks a definition of a CDP is. So for example, I see reverse ETL tools as one component of many for a CDP. So he can't, he shouldn't, in my opinion, claim ownership of a CDP by saying, well, we're the CDP because we do this one piece of, uh, in concert with, let's say, eight other things. And so I I, I don't think he actually believes in that because <clears throat> is is high touch responsible or any reverse ETL vendor responsible for bringing in data in real time in batch or streaming? Are they responsible for um, the transformations and all the ETL inbound? Uh, are they responsible for the identity resolution? Are they responsible for actually shaping the the data in the data warehouse storage locations, which reverse ETLs plug into? No, I, I mean, I don't think even Teos uh, would, would agree uh, to that. Um, what he would say is he can plug into the native sort of enterprise data warehouse, um, use that tool to make it easier for front-end users to uh, query the data, build audiences, and have all these connectors to downstream MarTech, AdTech, CRM, what have you, systems. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I don't know why. Um, I don't think you can claim to be a CDP in that situation. Yeah, it, totally fair. And I actually asked them like very similar type of questions. Like we broke down the eight package, uh, the the eight CDP components in in the packaged uh, option um, that RP Chudry from from DataBeats uh, put together, and there was like a lot of them where he agreed that like they don't do that today but didn't close the door on them ever doing that um like the the cdi component like the first party data tracking he he agreed that like they partner with snowplow on that um the etl piece like he kind of hinted at the fact that um they might be doing that uh, at some point but they just released ID resolution features. Uh, I haven't like super unpacked that and how much they they compare to like existing package CDPs. But they have that like audience segmentation area with like they're they're creating like the drag and drop UI to to build segments of users. Like they've got the reverse uh, ETL piece. They're maybe not doing a bunch of transformations, but. Like his argument there was just like, listen, I have like legit customers that have like punted their package CDPs and internally they refer to high touch as their cdp now even though we're the reverse ctl component of that and like you said maybe they're the larger enterprises and they've gone through like all the pain of getting that id set up and they're in a better place and they just need the reverse ctl piece but yeah like you said i, I kind of harped a little bit on the you know, the idea of like is this just kind of a marketing play to get people to your site and kind of like check out the product but they're doing they're doing super well and he's uh it was an awesome uh an awesome interview and uh yeah it's crazy to learn that he was 16 years old when he was at that segment wow wow um so let let's put it this way um i can i can see how if in a company all those other things uh around data collection and etl and and storage and and what have you were always there for a very very long time, mm -hmm. and uh, a reverse ETL or data activation tool came in as this net new thing that suddenly gave them these quote unquote CDP functionalities in their minds, um, where that's why they would say, "Hey, that is our CDP," right? Um, the way um, High Touch is kind of claiming. But I think if you were to just objectively say, and even if you look at their diagrams on their website, they'll show, hey, these things <laughs> that are part of the CDP, uh, high touch just plays right here. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that they're not playing in those other spaces. Uh, so so I, you know, I, I think it is a, a bit of a product marketing uh, buzz just to get people to talk about it. The other, and you know, everyone does that to a certain extent. The other thing I will say is, um, when when I first looked at that CDP landscape back in 2017 and how it happened today, 
um, you could already see that there were a lot of companies who were thinking about expanding into adjacent areas. You know, the tag management tools were saying, oh, why don't I store some of this data for you <laughs> um, in, in a database somewhere? Database tools were like, well, all this data is being loaded in here. What if I uh, built web SDKs to then collect some of the, the data? Um, mm -hmm. Segmentation tools, well, you know, those didn't exist, but <laughs> now they do exist in the form of uh, reverse ETL and data action tools. Uh, you know, they came out. So why wouldn't they also think about what if we could build a web SDK? What if we could um, create a data storage uh, solution? What if we could do some light ETL? What, could we, what if we could do some? Well, uh, do I foresee this sort of parity that will then start happening in the market as people try to build um, features some better than others? Uh, some will never be, you know, top right, but it will have that capability. Probably. Why wouldn't you, right? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you want to increase the the value proposition of your of your solution? And and that will happen, I believe, um, over time. And it's just going to be a matter of where do those product teams choose to invest their time? Do they think, uh, like, I think journey orchestration is going to be a really big next thing after company software ID ID resolution. Because I don't think a, a ton of people um, do journey orchestration really well or even understand what that means in an omni-channel view. Um, but reverse ETL vendors are sort of like the best uh, position right now. If you can really scale and perform using this reverse ETL approach, um, you're already doing the segmentation. The logical next step is to do the journey orchestration rather pushing those audiences to us to another journey orchestration tool, right? Yeah, I always found that like segmentation and, and journey orchestration piece interesting and in where it kind of sits in the MarTech stack because like most marketers in marketing operations that use like email automation, marketing automation tool, like they they have a segmentation engine already in their like iterables and, and their brazes and marketos, right? Like that's the the core foundational element of those tools. Before I send out an email, I can create a filter and a segment of those users, whether it's connected via API or like sitting on top of a warehouse, like that data is, is powered in and pushing over into that tool. They're creating a local uh, storage of that data. That's how they charge all of their users. But like now we have the reverse ETL tools claiming to be able to do the segmentation piece for you. So like they just send over a list of users or like they send over a new property. And then like, I just like, I filter on that new property in, in my customer engagement platform. But if those reverse ETL tools start adding journey orchestration stuff, like what are we doing in the customer engagement platform? Like, is it completely replaced when we just have like an email sending platform sitting or connected to the reverse ETL tool? Like if I can build a segment and create a journey in my reverse ETL tool, really all I need is like an SMS engine or like an ESP engine like Melgun to, to power that and, and, and activate it, right? Yeah, I forgot which um, analyst, uh, research analyst company wrote this, like a Farster or Gartner, but they had this concept of, uh, do we have, are we moving from uh, dumb hubs to smart spokes mm -hmm. or smart hubs and dumb spokes? So what you're hitting on is this shift to what if my, my center hub becomes super smart? Um, what do I need the, those spokes to do on the end? Maybe they can be dummy where you're sending them all the information, like just, just do this. Like I've already told you what to do, just the list. You don't even have to store all that. Because so, what happens is when you talked about like Mar Marketo and Braze and all these other campaign tools, you're limited in your in, in the campaigns and the, of what you can segment off of what data and information right. is in the tool. Now, some scale better than others, but a lot of the most popular ones, it wasn't, you ran into performance issues because a lot of people try to push all this data in and the segmentation logic would just be very, very hard. It, it time out sometimes where you can't even do it. So you have to simplify the logic. All this <laughs> yeah. stuff would happen, right? This is pre-CDP. Pre and so what you'd have to do is basically pre-process the data, um, um, create the segmentation and try to send a skinnier package over to them to actually do what they got to do, whether it's send an email or, or, or send a, send an audience to um, um, like social channel or, or paid media. And, and so, um, you know, if you see a lot of that more consolidating into the CDP, you're right. 
in the future, what is their role if a lot of that complexity is now being handled, you know, earlier up front? I think that's why a lot of, um, let's call it marketing cloud, uh, who have larger suites are saying, hey, we should invest in this area because this is going to act as our you know, central nervous system, air traffic control for the entire kind of marketing sales and service and commerce teams in the future. Yeah, definitely seen a lot of those folks doing that already. Like uh, Salesforce Marketing Cloud has their their own CDP version. Customer.io just announced like a, a CDP component of their customer engagement platform. So yeah, the the space is is fascinating, and it'll be it'll be cool to see how it, it kind of evolves there. But as like a a, a marketing uh, professional in that like Martech space, there it's a. Uh, it's wild to see how fast it's already been changing. Like for me, reverse CTL is like a brand new term and like the CDP itself is just like a, a year old for, for a lot of folks. Right. But I, I also chatted with um, some of the more enterprise uh, CDP options uh, on the podcast recently. I had Acquia on the show as well as action IQ. And they actually like, they have an interesting um I guess like presentation or argument to the whole like composable debate where they have like a full suite of tools. Um, like some have like a, on CMS and, and on Drupal, um, but like they all have this idea of like the hybrid approach to CDP where, you know, you can go the full stack route with like oh, the whole platform, everything like packaged up. Or if you already have shit set up already, you can just pick this and that and like you can go the composable route or you can go this hybrid approach and just like handpick the stuff that you kind of want. That's how they kind of claim or explain that the hybrid approach to be. Um, but I know you you see it as a bit differently. You wrote um, an article introducing the term dual zone as an approach to CDP. And it kind of explains how it can not only bridge the IT slash business gap, but also extends to what both the package CDP software offers and what internal teams provide. So like, Zone one to me, like, correct me if I'm wrong here. This is like my, my, my summary of, of your article there. Like zone one is like mainly cloud tech. Like we're doing ID resolution and data management there. And you're, you're saying that like we could separate that from zone two, which would mainly be SaaS, uh, journey orchestration, campaign activation, some of the customer engagement stuff that we kind of chatted about, um, walk us through like the both zones. Like how is this different than, than the hybrid approach that some of the companies I mentioned? Yeah. So. <clears throat> um, first of all, I'm actually going to touch on the companies you mentioned and that, um, I, I, so I a hundred percent agree with them. My belief is that even if your tool isn't designed, isn't just a composable component, even if you have a package CDP, you should start thinking about how to give customers choice and maybe let them license it in a composable way. So that, you know, it's more of a configuration of like, oh, I just only want to buy this piece of it. What does that look like? I think they would be smart to, to do that. Um, now, <clears throat> their definition of hybrid is very much more just more of the reverse ETL concept of like, hey, leverage the, the cloud data, native warehouse um, for a lot of the, the data storage and, and so forth. What else? Um, what I'll say is like, when I think about dual zone, it's really this idea that there are data, uh, producers and then there are data consumers, right? So the data teams are producing data. Um, there are marketing sales and service ops teams who are consuming it. And there's too many degrees of separation between them. So mm -hmm. there's this kind of divide. Now this customer data divide that I call it there are concepts called like data mesh and data fabric that is an attempt to solve this kind of gap between the two teams of like uh, data teams don't really know like the contextual nature of how I'm using the data kind of like it's almost like in a global region localized localizing language right they don't know how to localize my data for my particular use case that, that that's the way they think and then um data teams are kind of like hey I'm like producing all this cool data how come no one's using it or giving me any feedback <laughs> as to yeah. like, what other data should I be producing? So there's just like, a, you know, a disconnect there, uh, the way I call it as a customer data divide. So a lot of times when you go into a company and you say, um, what's your strategy for CDP? They typically, um, you have IT who's like, 
Oh, CDP. That's that's our thing. Customer data platform. Yeah, that's our thing. Uh, marketing and you know business teams are like, oh, CDP. Oh, I know all about CDP. All my Martech partners have talked about it. CDP. That's our thing. And it's almost <laughs> like if you were to put them side by side and kind of kind of show it. CDP means something a little bit different, right? The IT and data teams are thinking about data governance. How do I have the highest quality data? Make sure nothing, um, it, you know, we, we clean it up and we have the best sort of data to provide for the business, even though it's not usable, but <laughs> it's like it's the highest quality and we have all this governance wrapped around it. Business teams are like, I want a CDP because I'm told I have a CDP. My personalization is going to scale up like no other. Um, I'm going to know about all the stuff that led up to that moment, which means I know the right piece of content at the right channel, the right time, like all this, the right moment, like that's what they're buying, right? Not, not data governance. And, and that's not what the data teams are actually trying to support either. Right. They think it's, you know, supporting some sort of like report probably for the CFO. So there's just like this divide. And so dual zone is an attempt to say, okay, what if we, didn't think about CDP as like a package solution, but more a, a, around a set of capabilities. And these capabilities could be enabled by multiple technologies. So it could be um, uh, enabled by uh, cloud technologies. It, be, it could be enabled by SaaS technologies, right? And what if instead of forcing everything to be done in one place, you can load balance it in a way for my kind of web web people there um, where you can share the workload between two zones. One zone is doing more of the heavy lifting around ID resolution, uh, processing data, you know, all the machine learning and scoring, all the heavy duty compute and uh, computation type work, which is very expensive workloads should happen there. Then what about if you, took zone two as more of the orchestration and activation solution. Um, you don't create just a copy of data in there. You just send over the data to keep it as clean as possible to activate the use cases that you are actually trying to solve for the business because they don't need everything, right? They just need sometimes the summaries of the data. Like how many times did you come in, in the last three 90 days? You don't need to know what happened every single day. If you only need to know that information of how many in the last 90, right? As an example. So, so dual zone is actually trying to split the workload between the two. And it kind of says, IT, you know what? We're not trying to replace your AWS Azure GCP Snowflake solution. That's here to stay. And this is the role it's going to play. Um, on the on the on the on the SaaS side, like, you know what, you want to buy a package CDP, go for it. Pick, go run your RFP, pick the pick the package solution that you want. But when it comes down to actually licensing, right? Now we're gonna have a hard conversation around what is each role playing? So you don't overbuy or overextend in each, each zone. That's dual zone. Um, it's very much a composable approach at the end of the day. But when you think about going back to pebbles and rocks from a, and the CDP is a boulder, the pebbles are in the cloud native side. And the rock is in zone two. You're buying you're buying a pre-integrated thing, most likely on the right hand side, but mm -hmm. on the left hand side, you you have more um, composable because they're probably already using a lot of those tools today, right? Super anyway. fascinating. Yeah, love uh, <laughs> love how you broke that down. I definitely like have gotten a taste of both of those uh, point of views on on zone one and, and and zone two. And it's funny you, you say it like the the zone two, like most of the the marketers will buy those tools for like the the end promise of like uh, personalization and like right message, right time, right person. That's what like these these CDPs are selling because like it is what they have. Like product marketers are aren't doing a service to to marketers with like all the messaging on on their sites because like that's that's what everyone is is talking about there. Um, and Particle like does this a little differently. Like they're uh, one of the first CDPs that is trying to like 
unpackage uh, some of the package components they have. Like they just released um, new pricing that's that's pretty innovative in the space. And uh, when I chatted with MK, like he was uh, walking us through like some of the recent uh, acquisitions that the company did on like the data ML pipeline side, and as well as like the journey orchestration. So you could see like they're kind of like making moves in the space and just like expanding on what the CDP traditionally is and and does and hopefully counteracting like that that zone one and and zone two divide but yeah i mean um it's interesting that like uh i think it was acquia or or action iq i can't remember exactly which one it was but similar to m particle this like segmentation engine that they have it's not just like a a rule-based segmentation where like if someone has done x and y and they're like a and b create this new segment They've also like added uh, machine learning capabilities to the segmentation where it's not just like what people are doing and who, uh, what people look like. It's also predicting what certain people are going to be doing, like churn based or propensity to buy and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, like on top of like the interplay and and the consolidation in the market, it'll be cool to see like how AI is kind of uh, sitting where AI sits in in a lot of these tools there. Yeah. So can I just say one last thing about the hybrid approach? When people first hear me talk about dual zone, they they go, oh yeah, I've heard this before. It's just a, you know, it's just a hybrid approach. And then <laughs> what I, and I hate that. I just absolutely hate that. And I said, this is not a hybrid approach. And the reason why this is not a hybrid approach is because um, actually one of my clients said this the best. He said, oh, I guess we fell into hybrid. Yeah, because you started with something and over time you built this Frankenstack and, (laughs) you know, over time it wasn't a holistic approach. It was just adding more things, taking away things. And when you look at it, is it hybrid? Sure. If your definition of hybrid is you have a little bit of everything Mm -hmm. Um, in dual zone, it's, it's very purposeful. Like you, you have a, very strong point of view of what happens where, even to the point where a lot of times people think of CDP, oh, identity resolution happens in zone one, as an example. Our point of view for identity resolution is actually it happens in two places. It's built in stages. You build what we call a base identity in zone one <clears throat> that are true proxies for uh, identity and individuals. And then you let zone two, which is the SAS CDP, handle more enhanced identity, which leverages, let's call it, um, you know, device IDs, cookies, IP addresses, whatever other digital identifiers, which you basically have to decide um, what your threshold is for under over collapsing records. Because of, you know, we can't solve for if Phil ends up sharing his device with his wife or his friend and they sign in right to the to to the uh, what's going to happen from that particular company they're going to merge those records (laughs) you can't solve for that but but that but that's what you have to um live with in in this type of space yeah it's a yeah it's funny that you you share that because yeah i feel like ID resolution and probably like we could spend a whole episode on unpacking that. Like I know it's got so many misconceptions there, but I like how you you broke it up there in in two different parts, and it doesn't have to just be in in one of those zones. And and how different that is with the hybrid approach, just being purposeful about splitting those up and and being mindful about the divide between the IT slash data team and the business teams, and and how we can come come together there. Yeah, David, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like there's there's a bunch of other tangents that uh, I'd love to dive in on there, but I've got two last questions for you. Um, you're also an executive sponsor and co-founder of the Southeast and East Asian Leadership Network. As someone who's kind of always looked upon uh, a way to promote Asian American Pacific Islander awareness, uh, walk us through like what that network means to you and, and what kind of awareness activities you you help organize. And after I wrote that question, I, I saw one of your, your posts on LinkedIn that you recently had Irene Lee, director of drama series at Netflix, talk about Asian Americans in, in media there. But yeah, I would love for you to talk us through that leadership network yeah i mean you know i was born i was born here my parents were immigrants uh probably classic immigrant story came here with nothing uh built their own business up um you know grew up very you know let's say i grew up in brooklyn not a lot of money (laughs) uh 
you know, I, I still remember um, thinking, you know, one day if I can make six figures, you know, hundred thousand dollars, I'd be set for life. That was, that was my <laughs> dream growing up in the, in the nineties. And so now, you know, um, now that, you know, I've obviously progressed in my career, um, I've always had a passion for Asian American awareness growing up in New York. You know, you're not really, you experience a lot, I mean, even though it's a metropolitan, you know, city, you experience a lot of uh, racism. Um, obviously, during the pandemic, there was a lot of um, Asian American hate crimes that were being committed uh, to the point where even when me and my wife, we re revisited New York and, you know, I'm not scared to go back to New York. Um, I didn't live in the, you know, uh, nicest parts of New York. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with living, you know, in and in, in sort of walking through rougher neighborhoods. But my wife is like, have you not read the news? Um, are you, you know, I really don't feel comfortable taking, you know, the subway and, and all that stuff. Um, and I said, no, you're, you're being ridiculous. And then um, it was the first time in my entire life going back to New York, I did actually feel a sense of like being afraid, um, walking down certain streets. And I was like, maybe I'm just getting old. Like I'm not <laughs> like I, I, I used to be so, you know, um, confident um, in my own city and uh, now I'm, I can be scared. So in general, you know, seal um, for me at Deloitte was a very long time coming. It didn't actually exist until 2021. Um, because in, in Deloitte, um, they kind of focus on underrepresented minorities. We don't like to use that term anymore, but, uh, you know, Asians weren't considered, uh, you know, an underrepresented minority. Um, but, you know, my, my argument was, though we not, might not be underrepresented in, in the company, we still are a minority in the world, <laughs> at least in the U.S. That is probably not the world, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but 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 in our day to day living in America, we are, and yeah. you know it's really important because um, I think there's there's there, there's certain things that um, we struggle with, and I can go on all about sort of like Western and Eastern cultures kind of colliding and how some of those actually hurt our ability to uh, move up the corporate ladder um, because of those sort of you know, Eastern uh, values, if you will, that that got imbued and imparted on us. Um, so what this group really means to me is how do I help other junior practitioners within my firm understand what they need to be successful um, without having to, how do they move up without being fake and staying their true authentic self, right? And feeling good about how they're making their accomplishments and achievements um, within the company as well as their career, right? Inside or out. I, I have, I'd love for them to be in, you know, grow within the company, but I'm also really happy if they just are able to find success elsewhere. It's, it's more about their, their, their like self-development. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, th this has just always been something uh, really important to me. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, continuing to sponsor this group. Love it. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for, for doing that uh, super powerful story there. And I'm sure very impactful uh, within Deloitte and uh, setting a great example for uh, what larger companies and companies of all sizes should, should be doing for, for different voices uh, within a company and representing uh, all, all different types of folks. Um, I got one last question for you, uh, David. I know we're a bit over time. Appreciate you you going over there, but you're you're managing director and executive sponsor of Seal. Uh, you're a co-founder. You're a husband, a Netflix binger as well. Uh, you have a lot going on. One question we ask all of our guests is, how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? <laughs> you know that I'm I'm so curious. What other? I think you told me that you asked everyone this. I don't. I don't yeah, listen. Yeah, yeah enough of your podcast to see what they say <laughs> um I, I i don't think i find balance i don't i don't think i actually am able to find balance i think um there are in my opinion there are always trade-offs and uh so i'm constantly making trade-offs around you know um where i could put my attention to whether it's my family or my work or my friends and and other things and so um for me it's about 
um, making a conscious decision of accepting, hey, this is how I want to spend my time and making sure that, um, you know, you don't feel regret. Um, I do think that what helps me also is that I actually do love my job. Like when I first um, started my career, um, I probably got influenced by my parents who are small business owners. And I was like, I'm going to start my own business. And consulting is a great opportunity for me to learn how other people are successful um, and how they run their businesses so that one day I could build my own. I think uh, Deloitte, you know, the way they're structured, um, you kind of get to um, build your own teams and, and act as your own boss to a certain extent, uh, while still loosely being, you know, um, you know, following the corporate mandates and so forth. But <laughs> largely, you get to kind of build your own business and, and build your own teams. And that part made me think, okay, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll stay here a little bit longer. And I generally do love to learn. Um, I'm, you know, in this conversation right now, you know, I love kind of having this dialogue, learning about what other people are doing in this space, um, as well as what others um, could be doing in the future, uh, just sharing stories. And, and and that, you know, really excites me. And, and then passing on some of those lessons learned and knowledge. I tell clients all the time, my pain is your gain. Like, I'm not going to come in and say, I was, you know, I know all the answers. I can tell you all the places where we tried it and it did not work. So we're not going to do it with you. That's one less thing we're going to try attempt on this one. I love it, dude. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that answer. It's very uh, powerful, but authentic too. Like I think, um, definitely a lot of people say on in, in their answer that like yeah like i i have great balance and like i spend a lot of time with friends and family and whatever but a lot of folks like do you say what you we say in there it's like yeah I, I struggle with the balance like it's it's never perfect like there's there's trade-offs here and there i try to prioritize like i try to say no to some stuff but yeah ultimately like uh i like your your answer there and trying to to find ways of just like being happy and enjoying what you do and i think that that goes a long way and uh, definitely showcases and uh, the passion that you have for for the space here so yeah really appreciate your your time david uh thanks so much yeah thank you phil